You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. So, hello again. It's time for some more prehistories, except today it's a little different. Hi, I'm Kim Bidolf. I'm an archaeologist from the UK, but I mainly work in museums now. I love telling stories, that's the thing, and I'm fascinated by the stories all around us, particularly ones about the past, obviously. I just finished reading Lanny, a book by Max Porter. Has anyone else read it? It's a strange novel set in a little commuter village near London, which quite describes really well the place I live in. A child goes missing. He's a strange child, Lanny, who seems to be able to talk to dead people. Who has taken him? The local weirdo artist? Or dead Papa Toothwort, the green man? He remembers when the hillfort was built, when a Roman legionary was raped by his commanding officer, when a medieval woman rode by on her horse. The book was full of snatched conversations in the village that dead Papa Toothwort seemed to love to hear and taste, the strange modern phrases we all trot out. There's one. And it got me thinking about the everyday speech of previous generations. Was it just as lacking in poetry as ours? Or am I being unfair? Is there poetry in some of the words? I want to... Actually, where is that book now? Paul's not entirely riveting lecture. Worst plant sale in a decade. Toodle pit, my soaps are starting. These are the kind of things, you know, how everyday and banal they are that we say to each other nothing very poetic but maybe it is what did previous generations say to each other but I digress (laughs) last month I talked to Michelle Paver the author of Viper's Daughter that made my daughter extremely happy I hope it will introduce many other children to Michelle's amazing series set in Mesolithic Scandinavia slash Siberia the series of books that started with Wolf Brother which I talked about in um, is that episode one of the podcast possibly or very early on there's still time to tell me what you thought of it tag me on Twitter at prehistpod or you can leave a message on the episode page on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories. Today, we're moving on to another time and place. The definition of prehistory is a time before writing, but we're going to look at a time when there was writing and see what it can tell us. I have become quite interested in the post-Roman period in Britain in the 5th and 6th century AD. I've been doing some work on public programming at Billingsgate Roman House and Baths in the City of London, and it appears to have occupation into the second quarter of the 5th century. So I, the prehistorian, am trying to wrap my head around what's going on at that time. So one of the books I came across when looking around this topic is a new translation of the book of Taliesin. Have I said that right? Taliesin. Taliesin. I'll introduce you in a second. Okay, by Gwyneth Lewis and Rowan Williams, who is the ex-Archbishop of Canterbury. The original was written in Old Welsh, though not necessarily set in Wales. I'm joined, and you've already heard her, <laughs> by my lovely guest, the poet and geomythologist and deep mapper Erin Kavanagh. Hi, Erin. 
Shmai from deepest west as well. <laughs> Yes, it's wonderful that you're actually in Wales, but obviously it's not great for recording a podcast, is it? No, (laughs) we don't do technology here. We've had a little bit of back and forth. Can we use Zencaster? Can we use Skype? Can we use Zoom? Um, In the end, um, Erin is underneath her desk in the normal place that she records our podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) The only place where the sound is actually quite good. I'm so sorry. That's all right. It makes a change from sitting in car parks on my phone explaining to the police why I'm more than five miles from my house. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's such a strange time. I thought that I would be able to get on with this podcast really easily now, you know. Oh, right. We're in lockdown. I don't have any other things apart from work. I am still working. But, you know, I'm not doing anything in the evenings anymore and all that stuff. Let's let's restart this podcast and um but it's it's so difficult to concentrate on getting anything actual physically actually done is it yep <laughs> which is great when you've got deadlines to go go and everybody needs to speak to you via email and and zoom and you have to go for long drives <laughs> in order to get them anyway yes i know when when the only way you can actually interact with people is on the internet you really have to have good internet and that's that's just must be so i mean i'm in buckinghamshire so we're pretty well connected you know we're basically a, a satellite of london but yeah it's not the same for you no i i am in taliesin land here yes. uh, we we have no trains we have no buses uh, we have very little internet. We're, we're, we're almost out of the seventh century, but the battles are still being waged between pagans and Christians. So we haven't quite emerged yet. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty good then. I mean, you're a very good guest for this podcast for this particular podcast. But of course, you've been on the podcast before. I was just going through actually the old series and seeing how many that you'd you'd been on. You and I first talked I think in episode 10 on the poetry special with Gavin McGregor um, from Northlight Heritage that was lovely and then we also talked about Mesolith the um do you remember that uh the graphic novel that everybody else loved and we thought we we questioned a little the representation (laughs) of women in that (laughs) that was episode 18 and then we last time we talked actually was about the Ardman film, do you, Early Man. Oh yes, oh, I've still got mixed feelings about that film. Yes, I mean it's a bit of fun, but it was just oh, it's, it's like yeah, it was it was very odd. Anyway, but there you go. So it's been uh, been I I always love having you on the podcast, Erin, and and we should have you more and more. Uh, obviously I try and have other people as well at some point but <laughs> if you want to do the prehistory of mermaids yeah that quite good that would be good let's do that at some point yes I'll put that on the list that sounds great um what mm. I'm trying to do is kind of really st- string my things together a little bit better so that when people listen to one podcast they know what's coming next rather than I kind of went with oh I don't know what I'm going to be talking about next so next time I'm going to be talking to Rena Maguire about um the Ulster cycle so it's, it's quite a nice follow-on from this actually talking about Welsh literature mm, you could have had it both on at once <laughs> 
Yes, I could have, but I thought I would divide it so that we could give more time to Welsh literature and, you know, separate to, to the Irish. But I think they kind of follow each other quite well. The one I did last was about Mes- it's Mesolithic Scandinavia, so it's completely unconnected. Yes, it's so nice to to hear from you, actually, because, you know, the last time I saw you, was it was it at the Theoretical Archaeology Group or was it in France, when we happened to oh, bump oh, into each other in the Val de Vézère. Happened to bump into each other by prehistoric art in the middle of France. Yes, that, that was a little surreal. Yes, even for that us. was surreal. It was amazing. I just noticed, I think, on Twitter that you said you, you and Martin Bates were in France and I was like you're not in the Val de Vézère as well and when we were just about to come and come over so yeah. and we met up at Lascaux didn't we, we? met at Lascaux yes yes yeah mm. that was um, great well, the, the, last, <laughs> the last time was definitely uh tag diva um when I had you uh Shanks oh, yes. Gaffney uh, ben Geary, uh, Tom Payne, all doing your wonderful thing. Um, and with, with Eloise, Eloise Gauvier. It was a wonderful session. It really was. I did feel, I've been feeling imposter syndrome for years now. And um, I don't know, I think that made it slightly worse for me to follow, you know, Michael Shanks. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. But it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, I'm really, really glad that we did it. No, nobody, nobody slash everybody was in the same boat. You know, we had I had Shanks there talking about the frontier of theoretical archaeology. Really, everybody present was an imposter in that context. Um, uh, But he loved yours. Your your um, presentation was his favourite. He was raving about it afterwards. Oh, seriously? That's amazing. Well, that's (laughs) It makes me feel slightly better. He didn't fall asleep. This is is a compliment of high order. He didn't. No, a (laughs) couple... Yes, well, I I will take that compliment and um, (laughs) I will keep it close to my heart. (laughs) Anyway, after that lovely catch-up, because we haven't actually, you know, spoken in a while and uh, it just feels like that during lockdown, doesn't it, that whenever we speak to someone we've got to really reminisce about the good times when we could be in the same room together and travel yeah, to places and stuff I confess I confess I, I quite like not going anywhere <laughs> <laughs> you but you've I mean you do jet well not jet set but you go uh, you have been invited to quite a few interesting places yeah, it's, it was very weird. I had to do a summary of, of the, the work I've done academically in the last 18 months. And I was looking at it going, Japan, Canada, mm-hmm. France, China, Iraq, and going, hmm, hmm, I don't think Hamburg's going to be very pleased with me. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been anywhere. No, it's amazing. I haven't been anywhere for no. you. The last place I went was Cork, and I, I said after going to Cork, I'm not, uh, I'm not going anywhere for a while whilst I, I regroup and think about this travel business. Yeah, it does. Uh, I'm sure it, it sounds really glamorous, but it can, it can wear you down going all over the place, and especially on academic matters, I guess. Yes, and actually, this is uh, to, to bring this to to Taliesin. Of course, the individuals mm. who are being talked about in these stories were well-travelled. 
you know, we're not so, even mm. though it's often described as insular, this tradition, the individuals were moving around substantially, particularly the Irish side, where mm. a lot more or more settled. But I mean, the, the Irish side is, is all, was all about pilgrimage and, and finding the, the deity and the, the history and movement. Uh, which is where this notion of Irish exile comes from, which we don't have in the Welsh. It's, it's one of the few differences, really, between the Irish and the Welsh uh, poetry of this period in its relation to mm-hmm. history and archaeology. So this is, uh, I have uh, mentioned, it's not my era at all, and it's something I'm learning. I'm just learning about. I'm coming to Taliesin and, uh, you know, I'm reading some academic papers about this period as well and trying to trying to find out what's going on because it's not something that I've looked at a lot. So you're going to have to really help me, Erin, and you are the person to do it. So that's good. <laughs> so you, you were just talking about imposter syndrome. So I am, I am speaking from West Wales here, um, where just up the road from me, we have John Cork, we have Marianne Constantine, Margaret Haycock, Patrick Sims-Williams, I mean, uh, Rachel <laughs> Bromage was here, you know, Gwynne Evans. Yeah, but I know very, you. So very I'm unqualified <laughs> for this conversation. But, yeah, I, but, uh, I mean, not at all. I don't think so. Um, I, I want to talk to you. I enjoy your insights into um, literature and um, mythology and archaeology and how they all interact. So I think... And you know it has been recognised quite recently, hasn't it? That your your um, insights are quite useful and <laughs> interesting. So let's 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 go on to Taliesin then. So this new translation, poems of warfare and praise in an enchanted Britain, was a new translation published last year by Gwyneth uh, Lewis, who is um, at one point the Welsh poet laureate. I think is that right? Uh, and um, Rowan Rowan Williams. Yeah. And I thought I saw it. I love the front cover because it's kind of green manish and mm. you know and all enchanted stuff. And um, I did judge it on its on its cover and picked it up. And it was interesting. I was thinking, oh right, I'll find out all about um, Welsh literature here. And I, I feel I don't feel hugely like I've got a gr- good grasp of it. I mean, because <laughs> um, these poems are, are quite not ephemeral. It's they're slippery, aren't they? They are. Um, yes. who, who was Taliesin? Was he a real person? My word, start with the big question, why don't you? <laughs> okay, well, Taliesin is both a historical person and a legendary figure and a voice. Mm. So what, what we have with the Taliesin we know of here and now is a type of poetry a type mm. of bardism, so a voice. And so within the uh, translations that the Archbishop and Gwyneth have, have done here, um, which is seminal, if this is this is the first full book in a hundred years. Mm. So it's it's a very, very important translation. They cover both who Taliesin may have been as an historical figure and then the voice of Taliesin in the later works. Hmm. And part of the confusion identifying who he was or may have been 
is that the poetry points both forward and backwards. And so it's very yeah. hard to tell sometimes if it's being actually prophetic or if it's written in the future, set in the past. Pretending, pretending to be prophetic. To be prophetic. So all of that mm. muddles muddles together. Um, but the historiosity of, of Taliesin and Inerin, who you, you might talk about in your next podcast as well, is, is often taken from Historia Britannum, the Memorandum of the Five Poets, where we have Bochfor, Cian, Talent, Tadawen, Inerin and Taliesin. Right. And so for, for a long time, that, that's AD 5 or 7, I think. And so that was taken mm-hmm. as, as defining this is when Taliesin lived. He was one of these great first poets. But there are questions over the veracity of that particular dating system. So yeah. that source and all the others tangle together. So one source, of course, has read another source. Yeah. And then they've based their work on somebody else's work. And, and so you're, well, you think you have a tertiary source, it can be a primary source, but it's a primary source, it can be a secondary yeah. source. And they're all referring back and forth from one another. And it's immensely yeah. complicated. And we need historical linguists to deal with this. People like John Koch, who's you know, the, the king of this particular subject um, at Calc and Aberystwyth. To untangle what's what's going on here. Uh, so in mm. that respect, Taliesin is was a person we think we can possibly date for the sixth century, but is more mm. much much more than that. Uh, does that answer the question? So it's a very difficult question. <laughs> It is a very yeah. I know I started with the with the hardest one. I mean, to to kind of um, explain a bit more behind that, the 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 poems are not uh, written down until much later, are they? Ooh, well, again, As, with the, again, or are they? <laughs> so I, I very much liked the way you you open the podcast by saying that you're coming from a time of prehistory with no writing, to a time where there is writing, because actually we're yeah. talking about a period where writing begins Mm. in the Welsh and the Irish corpus. So what we're seeing is this first transition from rhythmic oral communication to this post-Roman Latin literacy. And you, you have a tension between the two, and that's part of what is difficult with analysing the poetry and, and also the advantage of it, because the, it isn't yet stabilised. The writing is just beginning. Mm. And so, um, you know, the, the Welsh are, are learning to, allegedly learning to write from the Irish, just, just that's coming in. And so you've, you've got these different dialects. You've got archaicisms in what's written being used later, yeah, which confuses the period. So it's a really fascinating time where these stories emerging from a possible oral culture of straightforward, but you know, interactive bardism in the way we see in indigenous cultures around the world to a literature. Mm. 
they interrelate so closely um, that it, it it's almost a nonsense to try and untangle them. Yeah, I think that's that's what's really doing my head in, frankly, to use a very mm. non-poetic phrase. But yeah, for instance, like I am fiery Taliesin, which is number 35 in this translation, where they mm. describe how that it's thought. So he's he's said to be the um, the poet to... You'll have to you'll have to say the Welsh here for me, um, Melgwyn. Melgwyn, yeah, Gwyneth? yeah, yeah, Melgwyn yeah. Gwyneth, um, which, Melgwyn so Gwyneth. who is? Yes, but John Cook says that just that's not right. So mm. I'm not going to argue with John. <laughs> <laughs> but it says that you know that this is um, thought to be really early elegy, but actually it's got it seems to have like old fashioned phrasing built into it to make it sound older than it actually is. I think as, as kind of a, an, an example of what you were just saying, basically. Yes. I mean, so I, it's, I, I can give you, I mean, we're still doing it, still doing it now. I mean, I use mm. layers, layers in the landscape. Um, Brendan O'Coyd more follows Taliesin. Mm. You know, there were multiple, multiple poets from the last hundred years who've, after the last translation into English, um, which is, I think, mm. 1913, many poets, modern poets, have, have picked up this archaic language. The point of that is to show an authentic voice, to say, look, I know what I'm talking about. This is how, you know, you write the poetry, you use an, an, an idol you know, you work with this rhyme, you work with this meter, these are the turns, mm. this is the patterning that we use that shows I am of this place and I have credibility. Yes. And and so it's a little bit like when a student is learning to write in a discipline and they study the writing of experts in that discipline. And then you read their their essay. And it's written in the language of thirty years ago. Hmm. It's oh uh, yeah. It's a similar. There's a bit more going on there, but it's a similar thing. So you learn how to write by copying, and um, but then you're also giving credibility to the way you're writing by using voice. But you're also connecting to this shamanic history that makes you part of the corpus. Now, I mean, I I came into learning Taliesin 40 years ago and I'm I still know nothing <laughs> you know <that's, laughs> well I don't feel so bad then <laughs> that's that's four score years of, obviously I haven't been studying it every day for four score years but that, that <laughs> is a long time of of being part of the tradition yeah and so we this this adds to the the confusion and the the uh, I'm a five Taliesin and uh, number 35 I mean, it's it's halfway through the translations. Now, mm. the Archbishop Gwyneth have started with the earliest texts and then moved through. So we mm. know at that, this point, just by looking at the shape of the book, we're not dealing with the original Taliesin at this point. Yeah. So it's going to be something like uh, the early books, which are to basically praise poetry of the warrior king, U- uh, Urian, most of the time. Urian, yes. The, 
yeah those are the earliest ones and it's interesting i i find those early ones because they're it's it's in welsh they were welsh it's welsh literature obviously but it might have been written in northeast england what is now northeast england yeah, I'm, is that is that right? Did I read that right? <laughs> I'm betting when you got this book, after admiring the cover, the next thing you did was look at the map. <laughs> I love maps. <laughs> I know you love maps. So I bet you looked at the map and went, hang on, what? what's going on there? So the, <laughs> yeah. the territory of Wales that we know today didn't exist until Offa's Dyke. Yeah. And the, the large part of the corpus in Clifford uh, Taliesin is, is pre-8th century. So yeah. it's when Wales was, um, you know, Bithonic. So we're talking about the modern territory of Wales, the northwest of England, the northeast of England, and southern Scotland. So Cumbria, Yorkshire, Northumbria. I mean, Northumbria is massive in these stories. It's all really mm, yeah. It's Northumbria and Gwynedd. The, this power battle between the pagans and the Christians is is a yeah. is is a large uh, plot line here, but we're going all the way up to Carlisle, so it's yeah big territory. You know, I grew up in Yorkshire. We never talked about that history at all. It was. It was, we started with, I'm sure we started with Vikings and it was all about, you know, Grimsby and Wet Wang and all that stuff. And it was all of the, it was the place name evidence that we went with that was like, we're a, you know, we're an Anglo-Saxon Viking. And it, it's almost this kind of mirroring this horrible debate that's being raged about, about the use of the word Anglo, of the term Anglo-Saxon. It's almost like just ignoring everything that went. Well, it wasn't even before. It was, it, this was part of the history of that period. Anyway, I just, yes. So that was. Well, I mean, that, this is what. Uh, it did about. surprise me. It is what most mm. of the book is. This is what most of the book is about. It's, it's about mm. this relationship between the native paganism of, of Britain and the rising church. And where Taliesin sits in this is that you, his writing displays a knowledge of this esoteric, shamanic, possibly indigenous knowledge, and then a, a, a very solid knowledge of Roman Catholicism, of the Roman Church. Mm. Um, and we see mm. this, you know, when, it, when he recounts going and celebrating Easter in Northumbria, this is deeply accurate descriptions of for the, the the science natural science and the theology of the time to say look you know Taliesin knows his liturgy he knows the church he, he understands the Roman religious history and its relationship mm. to this land but at the same time we have the battle of the trees <laughs> you know we have I know esoteric yeah and so and it's kind of and, and, um, the uh, the praising of these warriors who are going out killing people, and yet they're also great Christians. And I, I, I mean, obviously, that's just looking looking from our time. That seems incongruous, but it wasn't incongruous back then at all. No, and you could be a little careful with the the praise side of things because the praise poetry is the earliest. So that's the heroic age mm. where it's it's all about laments and battles. And then that that 
changes as we come out of this was sixth, seventh century. But it's understandable that the, the, the poetry of that time is talking about actual historical battles because mm. they it, they were they were rife. It's not a it's not actually a particularly interesting period in many ways, because there's just all these little skirmishes going on between the Picts and the Anglo-Saxons and the Welsh and, and the Irish and the, the Northern, you know, Bregad. And it, it, it's just all these little, little battles that then are being, the poet is being, the poet's job is to praise whoever's paying him. <laughs> yes. So it's propaganda for the period. But it feels also like the, the having the bard there is a very pre- historical yes. uh, thing yes. um as you say the shamanic the you know it, it harks back to to kind of pre-roman to to indigenous it does but it's, it's also um, very christian you know go and bless the battle sites um yes it is know, it's, it's got that christianity kneel, there yeah spend the night spend the night kneeling before the altar before you go into yeah. battle it's it's as christian as it is pagan and Taliesin is both of these. Yeah. To me, that is what makes him so interesting in that he mm. is embodying the voice, Taliesin, is embodying this transition from, um, you know, Iron Age, Britain, through the Roman, the influence, you know, because this is happening at the end. Mm. Uh, you know, the Romans beggared off fifth century, but we've still We've got people who are British who are Romano-British. So you've got this native paganism. You've got the infiltrating Christianity. You've got the high church coming from Ireland in Irish, which I'm sure you'll hear about in the Annals. Hmm. And then you've got Northumbria and the Anglo-Saxons coming in and, you know, a return to paganism for like two years, 633 to 635, where <laughs> thing reverts. Not Christian anymore. We're pagan, you know, they're pagan for two years. So you've got all these relationships <laughs> between the battles, and you've got strange little occurrences like the Battle of Chester, which I'm going to throw in there because I'm from Chester, right, absolutely in the middle of of old Wales. Yeah, where you know we have the this the monastery in Bangor and Dee, and the monks come to the battlefield, Bethel Fifth Battlefield. Huh. You know, and they're, they're slaughtered, but you have monks going into battle. So you're, you know, you're yeah. throwing up this point that today we think all Christians should be, should not be pro warfare. But of course, at, at the time, it, it's not working like that. This is, this is God's will. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we, it's, it's all tangled together. The religion is tangled together, the cultures are tangled together, the languages are tangled together, and the time periods are tangled together. So nobody is going to, yeah, no one's going to come to this this wonderful translation and then go, oh yeah, I, I get it now. Everyone's going to come to this translation. <laughs> so we're a little bit more confused than they were to begin with, but it's a more informed yeah. confusion. And that's what <laughs> Yes. I like that. That's good. And a more informed confusion. I think that's the, my permanent state. Um, but the, um, <laughs> what I thought was was a slight shame about this is it 
is is I mean obviously it's a translation into English that's the whole point of it but there wasn't there's a there's a little bit of Welsh in there but there's not I would have liked to have seen them both side by side even though I don't understand Welsh and I can't speak it as I've demonstrated (laughs) quite uh, well today but there's something about the I don't know the the poetry of it and the music of the words and the the phrasing and and the meter and scansion that all is if they try I mean obviously that it's still lovely poetry but it's I don't I, I, I don't I I feel that maybe uh, some of that has been lost in the translating into English I don't know what you think about that I'm interested that you say that because it's definitely a problem I have with this. So can you imagine the size of the book <laughs> if if this yeah. been, if this had been included? Be, yeah, not just not just including the original, but then including a modern Welsh translation as well, presumably that would be useful. Not even that. If we just went from you know, if we have the original text and we have the translation. Hmm. Then you have to have uh, these. The original text is written in multiple different forms of Welsh. So then you have to have the study of that. That has to be explained. You can't just put the text there and leave it floating and then have the the text to it. So it would be enormous. Yeah, I I suppose you're right. Because the, there's this tangled web of of uh, time periods, as you say, and voices and stuff, then yes, I hadn't thought about that. That the you know the Welsh is all it's not it's not all from one particular time, is it? It's not a specific. No, no they're, they're they're really quite different. Um, yeah. Understanding how how the language is used is how we date how we date the poetry, and it's how we also date historical events, um, mm. and how we date then how is the poetry relating to the historical event event because you the, the whole of the book is written in in mono rhyme aldal so it, it's it's a pre-kanganeth so it it, it it predates the 24 welsh metrical forms we have in traditional poetry uh in wales mm. now so that they they occur in the, the the middle ages so this is the forerunner to it this and, and an Aaron include okay and you know they're they're the forerunners of this so what we see is yeah. a, it's quite a simplistic form but we where we have the rhyme then that the rhyme you know the end line we have these you have a steady rhyme pattern and then that informs us how to pronounce it and it informs the mm-hmm. meaning and from that we then untangle the the accent the region and mm-hmm. we untangle the date the snag in all of this is that some, in some respects, it, it's been possibly mistranscribed. It, the original yeah. has not necessarily been written down accurately. But so we learn a lot by studying the, the meter and the rhythm. And I particularly love this because when we write modern poetry in the Welsh tradition, we're still using these patterns to explain our own historicity and so it's fascinating Mm. to see that the sixth century when we study that poetry we're having to do the same process so the actual way the poetry written written is 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 so incredibly important and it can translate when it's done 
when it's written directly into English, you get a you can get a feeling of it. But English doesn't mm. do what um, modern Welsh does, and modern Welsh can't do what old Welsh does. And so, <laughs> we really, are getting a very distant echo of the original. Yeah, I think that's what I found difficult to deal with even though that was the only way that I'd be able to access the text at all my daughter's just in lockdown decided to teach herself Welsh good for her she picked it out of all the languages on a very well-known language learning site that Uh I shouldn't probably promote but it's very good and um (laughs) and uh and yeah she just picked Welsh and so she's been doing it for like 65 days straight she does it every single day, even on weekends, which is wonderful. So, you know, maybe she'll be able to help me with some a, Welsh a word, words at some a point. A word of caution with a particularly well-known language learning app. Um, <laughs> whilst I recommend it wholeheartedly, it, it, it's, a, again, a very particular type of Welsh. So I mm. don't recognise the Welsh that we speak here in Codigion in the Welsh that is not in that app. It, it's not how we speak it's not how we pronounce things the the um terms used like the terms for girl and boy are different the phraseology the negatives are different the pronunciation it just you know i can play things and go i have no idea what they're saying and then i see it written down and i go well we say that completely differently with the same words yeah. Um, how weird. I don't know how much that applies to other languages. I'm. I'm not. I, I know that um, French can do similar things, but um, yes, it's in Wales. This can vary within five mile radius. So when wow. the Welsh government tell us to stay within our locale, they're basically saying stay inside your own accent. As soon as you hear people speaking a different accent, turn around. <laughs> and go back. <laughs> yeah, out of your. It's it is actually still that specific. I d- thank you. I didn't realize that. I suppose I should have really I thinking didn't. about it, I but mean, not having learned it myself. No, how would you no, know? but you're right. That I, I know. I speak. I do speak French, and I and very. It's very clear that the Par- Parisian accent is very different to the Lyonnais accent, which is very different to the accent where my family lives, which is down in Agen. Everybody would say agent, even in France, except for the agenet, which call say agent. Um, so it's, um, it's a, I can see, I can, I mean, that's just a very, it should be a very obvious thing. So <laughs> do you think it's like maybe South Welsh, the, the yeah, particular yeah, thing that it, it's? It's, it's Cardiff book Welsh that they're, they're, right, right. they're mostly teaching. And I'm not, I don't really do it, I don't mean to denigrate that. But it is it isn't the same it isn't the same thing as that which is spoken. So for example, I'm I'm from North Wales, I'm from the bo- the borderland between Clwyd and um Cheshire. The language there is very different to the language yeah. here. I know I, I still have a Gorg accent in in my Welsh, even yeah. though I've lived in West Wales for twenty five years. And my son, even, who is conveniently called Gwydion, so he's very much in the North Welsh space, um, yes. his accent is is quite goggy. Um, and he was born <laughs> he was born in Aberystwyth. 
So it's it. But he's, has he got it from you? He got it. From, he got it from me. I'm spending a lot of time up there. In, now, see, yeah. Mid Wales. Mid Wales is where we think the scribe who wrote Taliesin's work down, we believe, is from Mid Wales, oh. which is interesting in its own right. Um, I'm still pushing that to find out more. Uh, on that, so, that, but the and is that because of the particular particularities? Yes, sorry, God. Yeah, particularities in the way it's written down. Right. Um, and right. West, the Westwalian accent, the Midwestwalian accent, has a lot to do with Lancashire and Yorkshire, far more mm. so than the North and the South. And so we have this uh, the Old North influence yeah. in the regional yeah. accent of mid wales so you know we're wow. still even today and th- this accent is dying out rapidly now as as, as standardized welsh is taught in schools but so we're seeing even in the voices today that i you know i step out and speak to my neighbor emir and he will speak to me in in an old codigion he's same age as me but he'll speak to me in an old codigion accent that has has a huge amount of influence from Lancashire and, and Yorkshire from from um, uh, Gogglas Hand from the the Old North. So we're still yeah. it hasn't gone yet from here. We're still in yeah. Taliesin space <laughs> in our language wow. and our our rhythms. And so yeah. when when we're analysing poetry and we're looking. It's very easy to be thrown by archaic terms, turns and and and, and twists and, and usages, and think, oh well, therefore that that is that is older, which isn't necessarily the case. I, I'm going to I'll, I'll cite you a, a verse from from something here. Um, usual after arrogance is loss. Usual after loss comes repentance. I, not I, sunk in the willow wood. Bear witness to the ball and flood. Now that follows, that's absolutely archaic. So you've got usual after traditional sixth century pattern. You've got cross rhyme, arrogance, repentance, but repetition, loss, loss. You've got the idle end rhyme, wood, flood. You've got I, not I, which is um, death of the author, essentially, mm. bearing witness. So you've got the Christian element. You've got the ball tied in with flood. Oh, and I wrote that this morning. <laughs> but that is absolutely, you know, sixth century style poetry. Yes. Very, oh, thank very, you very easy to fake. Very easy to fake. Uh, <laughs> I was yeah, thinking, oh, which one is that? I was looking through the book. And uh, that's, thank you for sharing. I, I hoped that we would hear some of your poetry as well today. It's, it's all fascinating. And I really would like to to hear some of the Welsh uh, somehow. So I'm going to have to have to find some of that. Mark, Mark um, Haycock is, is the one, you know, look, look, Haycock, look, yeah. look, look for Margaret's, Margaret's work. Um, a, a, you were talking Margaret about the phrase, phrase poetry element of it. Um, and the yeah. phrase poetry part is it possibly the bit that interests me in many ways the most because it's yeah. using poetry as moral philosophy um and it yeah. but it's also it's pro- it's it's also propaganda it's it's politics it's social storytelling of the the kind we we 
have in our newspapers today, but we also have in our mm. art centres. You know, it, it mixes all of these things together. But there's a fantastic paragraph by uh, Gildas the Wise, so sixth, mm. a sixth century monk, and he says, um, your excited ears do not alter the praises of God, but only your own praises. Your excited ears hear not the praises of God from the sweet voices of the tuneful recruits of Christ, not the melodious music, but empty praises of yourself from the mouths of criminals who grate on the hearing like raving hucksters, mouths stuffed with lies and liable to produce bystanders with their foaming phlegm. That's, <laughs> that's a sixth century criticism of praise poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly caustic. Can you imagine You're standing up? Graphic. Yeah, imagine standing up at a conference and saying that, you know, about one of our cherished poets today. Yeah. Um, he was caustic about a lot of things, though, Gildas. <laughs> he was. He was. But it just, I think it, it, it situates this poetry in a different way because we think of, oh, isn't yeah. this amazing? They're going around saying how wonderful people are. Um, and telling everyone about the stories isn't this isn't this useful? And Gildas is going, no, no, just just stop a moment here. Yeah, they have an agenda. They have their yes, own look, agenda. <laughs> exactly. Look why they're doing this. Yes. And so I mean, it's you have to. Is Taliesin a little bit like the um, Fox News oh, of his yeah, time? Absolutely. You have to treat his <laughs> poetry as politics. Do not yeah. treat this yeah. as as some aesthetic art form. It's politics. It's so yes. clever politics, and they're referencing each other. You know, it's it's rap. The closest we've got today would be would be rap. Would be George the poet. You know, he's, yeah. he's a modern. He's he's more of a modern modern day Taliesin. Um, you know, Welsh any Welsh poet I could really think of. Apologies to all the amazing modern day Welsh poets. I mean, we do have quite a lot. <laughs> we do have quite a lot yes. who, are, who are excellent, <laughs> even more who are less excellent. But this, this is that. This wow. is this, these are political discussions marking the death of somebody killed by somebody else due to a political yeah. political skirmish. This use of rhyme, use of meter, use of interreferencing, and then they're bouncing it back off one another in a, a rap battle. As well, so there's, there's a, you know, there's a lot. It's it's very fresh still. It's very fresh. It's very modern. Yeah, I think um, that referencing <laughs> old Welsh literature, uh, um, comparing it to rap is maybe where we'll finish this discussion. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I recommend people to read some Taliesin and then listen to George the poet. Yeah, um, I, I do recommend it. It's, you it's amazing. Hear, and, you will hear the, the the relationship between the two. I, I'm going to listen to some George the Poet. Thank you. I will do that. Um, I wanted to to bring in the Mab, but I think that maybe we won't do it um, any justice in just two minutes. So I'm, we'll have to talk about the Mabinogion another time. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's a because whole other. It's a whole other thing, really, even though it's lumped well, some I suppose I lump it together. Actually, that's where I'm coming from, um, and yet I should I shouldn't lump it. Um, and there was a a lovely translate. Um, well, 
a, a poetic rewriting, I guess, by Matthew Francis that I got hold of. So I will, I mean, I, I'm going to put that in the show notes so people can read that as well. Uh, and maybe at some point we shall come back to that. But we also want to to talk about, what did what was it that is, you wanted to talk to me about? Uh, oh, I jokingly said mermaids. Mermaids, yes, I definitely want. Prehistoric mermaids would be brilliant. I think that would be a really good one. I think I might have a, someone I know. Just yeah. to come back to the Mabinogi for a moment there, it's worth noting that Taliesin, the Taliesin stories, some of them reference stories in the Mabinogi. So he talks about yeah. Gwydion. He talks about. I mean, obviously, he comes from in the the the, the mythology of Taliesin's birth comes from uh, Caradhven, mm. and so we're we're immediately into this space where we're, we're taken into the, the 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 mythical characters in the Mabinogi. But he he talks about Cantagraylot. He you know he talks about Gwydion and and Olwen and mm. and. Mm. You know, so even though he's supposedly much earlier, so there's some really interesting relationships there. Um, it's best to completely ignore Arthur because that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, let's ignore him. That's yes, I, I mean at some point, at some point, I probably am going to have to go into it, but not not for a while. I think I need to be much braver before we tackle that subject. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is read, reading but, this, reading this translation by um uh the, the lovely Rowan and Gwyneth will give an I- idea of what was going on in Wales and in Wales as in Britain. So yeah, everywhere everywhere yeah. apart from the southeast um, of of the British Isles, it will give you a, a very clear idea, and the relation, the intense relationship between Britain and Ireland, is is clear in the the language. The book mm. gives nice little couple of paragraphs before each translation to situate it. They've been as clear as they can to give a linear pattern to it. They've been very strongly influenced, as they should be. By by Margaret Haycock and also her husband Patrick Sims Williams, who's who's an Irish scholar, well, a scholar of Irish literature and its relationship to Wales. So it, mm-hmm. it it it's very easy to read. It doesn't overweight you with the history. It gives quite other than the Battle of the Trees. It gives quite a balanced view of where the poems situate and what they're about and why and how. Given that it is written in you know in part by by an archbishop, he he does give a nice sensitive to both the paganism and the Christianity in mm, there. Yeah. It does lean heavily, you know, towards the Christian side, but um that's that's understandable. So basically one it's it's a damn fine introduction that you will never grow out of (laughs) and it's always good to have books like that on your shelf yes absolutely that's my bit of mark yeah thank you you've done a great a a great (laughs) outro for me there i don't really need to say much much else really um except Thank you so much, Erin, for joining me again today. And this uh, hopefully 
um, we will be speaking again at some point. We've got loads of ideas, so that's fantastic. And um, I, I just hope that we get to meet up um, sometime. Maybe I'll just leave it there, sometime. <laughs> sometime, 2021, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Zoom well, tag. Zoom tag, yeah, I think so, yeah. So thank you so much. And uh, if you want to ask Erin anything or just follow her because she's amazing, her uh, Twitter handle is geomythcavener. So I'll have to, I will put that in the show notes as well. So you'll be able to to click on that and follow very easily or ask her any questions. Uh, so thank you so much. That's been really great to talk to you. So, if you've been inspired, get hold of the recent translation of the Book of Taliesin by Gwyneth Lewis and Rowan Williams, both themselves poets in their own rights, of course. Let us know your thoughts on the episode page or on Twitter at PrehistPod. What have you been reading in lockdown, though? Have you read Taliesin? Have you read something else? Have you been furloughed and been able to catch up on your reading list? Have you tackled something that you've been putting off for years? I've read a strange collection of books, um, like Lanny, of course, that I mentioned earlier, but also um, The Good Girl's Guide to Murder by Holly Jackson. My Name is Why by Lem Cizé. Those two are both for my book club. Uh, My Cousin Rachel by Daphne du Maurier. That was quite good. Children of Blood and Bone by Tommy Adeyemi, which I love and I need to get the second one. Um, I even reread The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. I haven't read so much since I was a kid. I found escape in the stories. Some time when I wasn't thinking about the pandemic. But perhaps the lockdown has left you unable to read. Hopefully, we can inspire you to pick up a book again. Before the lockdown, I read Morgan Clewellyn's On Raven's Wing, which is a retelling of the story of Cucullin from the Ulster Cycle, the Irish legends. She has a huge number of books based on Irish legend and history, and next time I'll talk to Rena Maguire about the archaeology behind some of the stories. If you've read that book, On Raven's Wing, or anything by Morgan Llewellyn, let me know what you thought. Do you love it? Can you pick holes in it in terms of the history? What do you think? I'll put your thoughts to Rena, and we'll have a chat. So hopefully, listen again in a month to, uh, to that discussion I have with Rena. Speak to you soon. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.